Welcome to the Newhouse Center to culminate our week of work on Andrei Tarkovsky's 1979 film, Stalker, a work that tends to be either unseen and reportedly slow moving to the point of agonizing boredom, it's sort of the bad object film, or viewed obsessively by cinephiles and fetishistically adored. There's little middle ground with this film. Today, as part of our Distinguished Writer series, as Carol said, Jeff Dyer will be reading from his 2012 book, Zona, which takes as its, as its subtitle, a book about a film about a journey to a room. And by way of introducing Jeff Dyer in general, let's linger with the hinges of that subtitle for just a minute. For those two abouts seem absolutely crucial to the curious body of work that he's produced today. What should I tell you about Jeff Dyer? Should I tell you about him as a historical figure, that he is British, that he was an only child, that he lives in London, that he's currently teaching in Iowa. You can learn all of this and much, much more simply by reading his books, which are threaded through often to the point of being stitched together with asides about his childhood, very intimate bodily confessions, distracted work habits, and even what takes place in his imagination. So as goes a note at the beginning of his, of his 2003 collection, and ostensible travel writings, yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it, quote, everything in this book really happened, but some of the things that happened only happened in my head. By the same token, all the things that didn't happen didn't happen there too. Or should I tell you about his output, offer up some kind of list? This becomes a bit unwieldy. Do you want to hear about his four novels, Paris Trance, the Search, The Color of Memory, or most recently the 2010 Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi? Or, for the sake of brevity, should I stick with telling you about his works of criticism? Out of Sheer Rage, Wrestling with D.H. Lawrence, his tessellated study of photography, The Ongoing Moment, or perhaps his best-known work, But Beautiful, which, again, using that crucial word, is, quote, a book about jazz. But then, there are all the essays, the reviews, the minor, as he puts it in one collection, bits and bobs that we really should also talk about too. These are for The Guardian or for the New York Times Book Review, collected from time to time in fat volumes, including Working the Room and most recently otherwise known as The Human Condition. But those collections cannot contain all of those pieces and so they spill out and so I'm not really talking about them either. Nor have I spoken about his book on the First World War, The Missing of the Sum, or his early study of John Berger, Ways of Telling, and I haven't mentioned the work as an editor, I haven't mentioned the forewords to books of photography, or any of the numerous awards. One might talk about any of these things when introducing Jeff Dyer, but it is extremely difficult to talk about all of them. These so many abouts, despite their very targets, are really about something formal, which is the problem of genre a complication that trips up any attempt to talk about Dyer's body of work as though those neat taxonomies were strict divisions. For one is as apt to recognize writer Jeff with a G in fictional Jeff with a J in Venice as to find in the midst of a rumination on D.H. Lawrence, a long aside on Dyer's vanishing desire to write a novel, a fading that ends up constituting a new writing, one that is about that very waning. So any introduction that would hold to strict accounts of these are the novels and these are the essays and this is the criticism as separate entities is ultimately going to fail to hold. And perhaps his work is above all about that beautiful general muddying. And this is why even when he is not writing essays proper, Dyer always strikes me as writing 
essays in the sense of forms that constitute trials or attempts. He seems to be always testing genre in a way, and certainly he does that in the book that he'll read from today. There's just a little bit more to say about those abouts. About, of course, suggests on the subject of, or concerning, or in regard to. And Zona is certainly about Tarkovsky's film in a literal sense, constituting a summary of what takes place in the film. But running alongside, interrupting, even overtaking, or patiently waiting, are also digressions in a series of starred notes, ones that are about writing about Tarkovsky, and also about many other things. About also indicates a movement or a problem of direction, as in, I am trying to find my way about. And for a book that is about a film that is about a journey, which itself takes the form of a kind of writerly journey, the sense of approach and perpetually finding one's way about seems apt here as well. Finally, though, I'm an etymology geek. The word about derives from a very old word that means on the outside of, but in the neighborhood of. And this is the sense in which all of Jeff Dyer's disparate works are really about something, taking on this quality of being outside but in the neighborhood, outside of the academy but writing quasi-scholarly criticism, outside of communities but traveling within them as a temporary resident of their curiosities. And his work is thus about jazz, photography, literature, film, sex, aging, family, thrift, travel, tedium, and even donuts. And just when his work seems to be about something fundamentally trivial, even banal, say the search for a favorite pastry across various cities, it also stands outside, in the neighborhood of, in that case, a meditation on how one spends one's time, what habits and roots and small gestures of the everyday end up constituting how one has spent one's time, which is to say what one's entire life is ultimately about. Which brings us to today. How does Jeff Dyer spend his time? One of Dyer's most cited influences, and we had the pleasure of talking about this at lunch today, is the French literary theorist and philosopher Roland Barthes. And he, in fact, supplies a foreword to Barthes' beautiful meditation on both photography and his mother's death, Camera Lucida. In an essay about a Russian film not made by Tarkovsky, but I wondered if Jeff had this in mind when he was writing Zona, Barthes makes some notes on Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible. In this essay, The Third Meaning, Bart notes that there are several levels of meaning that we might figure out um, in an image from a film. We might grapple with the informational level. In other words, everything in essence one can learn from what we see in the image. Or we might grapple with the symbolic level. We might ask, what do those themes mean? Things that students in film classes do all the time. Having done that, is the critic's task over, Bart wonders. And his definitive answer is no, for I am still held by the image. One can see and glean and interpret and understand, but there's still what he calls a third meaning that is evident, erratic, obstinate, and what he ultimately and very idiosyncratically links to the thickness of the makeup on the courtier's faces in that film. We learn in Zona that Dyer has been living with, watching and rewatching, considering and tarrying with Tarkovsky's stalker for over three decades. And even after all that spending of all that time, he still appears to be held by the image. In so many ways, in so many genre obliterating forms and with so many works, Jeff Dyer seems to me to always be grappling with this fundamental fact that he is still held by the recording, by the photograph, by the strange meandering film he has seen so many times. And the only way to hold on to the brute certain fact of still being held seems to be to keep writing about, 
to linger outside but in the neighborhood of that holding in relation to all these many things. On that note, please join me in welcoming him to the Newhouse Center. Uh, well, thank you, Jeannie. Wowee, this is going to be one of those rare occasions when the reading itself is a bit of a letdown after the introduction, <laughs> I fear. So uh, thank you, thank you, Carol, for this invitation, and thank you all for, for coming. Um, kind of reminded there with that, all that about stuff, of, you know, Bob Dylan, when he was asked what his songs were about, came up with the great reply, well, some are about five minutes. Some are about eight minutes, and some are even about 13 minutes. Um, I gather that you all had the experience of seeing um, Stalker from a 35-millimeter print yesterday. I mean, you lucky people. Uh, because I say, I say lucky because um, I was doing an event in New York in, in the spring, and I was reliably informed by that not always entire, entirely reliable narrator, Lawrence Weschler, that there was not a single print in the whole of the North American continent. So, uh, obviously, his investigations didn't, uh, didn't, didn't bring him to, to, to here. To London. To, yeah, that's, uh, you got the print from London. Wow, so that's, that's great. And I think this is one of the things that Jeannie and I will talk about. Um, just preface my, I'm sure you've had some egotistical writers here in, 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 you know, in, in your time. But I'll begin this by uh, quoting myself, which is always a nicely vulgar <laughs> thing to do. Uh, when I handed in the manuscript of this book, I said to my agent, uh, I think you'll agree it's my greatest achievement. But I think we should backtrack a little bit so that we can provide some context for that comment. Um, I was, uh, when that book, Jeff in Venice, was published in Britain, I moved to a new publisher. And because, like a sort of footballer getting towards the end of his career, they wanted to make sure I was good for more than one season, they sort of said, well, what might you write next? And because I've always loved tennis, and because I played tennis with my publisher, and because at that point Andy Murray was poised to win, to win a Grand Slam, I said, I'd like to write a book about tennis. And it was one of those great publishing, kissy-kissy, huggy-huggy moments. So I was going to write a book about tennis. We're all going to get rich, and it was all fantastic. Anyway, so that, uh, that, all, that, that all sort of started happening. And then I found, although I was really still very, very interested in tennis, I just didn't want to write it. And I should have known better. I know that I hate to have contracts out. You know, I'm not one of these writers who who needs that sort of uh, that signed commitment, that obligation to do things. In fact, I found that not only uh, should I, not only was I, as, as always, having trouble getting going on a book, but the fact that I knew I had to deliver it, it was laying on me like a tombstone. And I couldn't make any progress at all. And I know as a writer well enough, I've been doing it for long enough, that I know the worst thing you can do is to sort of try to ride a bike with the brakes on, whereby you exhaust yourself and you fall off. And then it happened that um, uh, Stalker was being shown in, um, uh, in London, and there was a panel discussion afterwards. And I remember thinking, why didn't they invite me to take part in this panel discussion? And then, um, then I realized, well, you know, I'll just write something about Stalker. And I started, just for fun, really, I just started doing this crazy thing. I started summarizing the film, 
and as a way mainly of bunking off from writing the tennis book. And in no time at all, I went from being depressed about not writing the tennis book to having a really fun time summarizing this film, which had meant so much to me. So what I'm going to do is um, read you a bit of my summary of the book. And what happens is that at the beginning, I stick very, very closely to what's being shown on screen. So in some weird way, the book is like a kind of, almost like a novelization of what, what's going on. Um, and then, as you know, those of you who've, who saw the film yesterday, gradually what starts off as a straightforward trip or journey becomes progressively more meandering and they fall prey to, uh, to more and more sort of philosophical disquisitions. And the same thing happens with my book. As the, as the book proceeds, so there are more and more of these, um, these little di digressions from me about matters raised by the film. So I'll read a little bit from the beginning, and then, um, then we'll uh, read some bits from the end where I, I talk about, I give my views on some of the things that Tarkovsky mentions. By the way, were you all at the film yesterday? Oh, okay. So but has everyone seen Stalker? Okay, do I need to worry about spoilers? No, okay. Well, that's a good attitude, as though no, because I've got no intention of ever seeing the film. <laughs> it sounds so boring. I mean, I, yeah. So, um, I also, I should say, uh, I've come increasingly to dislike those books where people say uh, in the sort of introduction exactly what they're going to do. I like those books such as you get by Roberto Calasso, where you're just plunged straight into this this kind of thing. So there's no introduction at all here. I'm going to start with the very first words of, of the book once we've had the epigraphs. An empty bar, possibly not even open, with a single table no bigger than a small round table, but higher, the sort you lean against while you stand and drink. If floorboards could speak, these look like they could tell a tale or two, though the tales would turn out to be one and the same ending with the same old lament, not just in terms of what happens here, but in bars the world over. After a few drinks, people think they can walk all over me. <clears throat> we are, in other words, already in a realm of universal truth. The barman comes in from the back, lights a cigarette, and turns on the lights. Two fluorescent tubes, one of which doesn't work properly. It flickers. He looks at the flickering light. You can see him thinking, that needs fixing, which is not the same thing at all as, I'll fix that today, but which is very nearly the same as, it'll never be fixed. Daily life is full of these small, repeated astonishments, hopes that it might somehow have fixed itself overnight, and resignations, it hasn't and won't. A tall man, a customer, enters the bar puts his knapsack under the table. He's tall, but not young, balding, obviously not a terrorist, and there's no way that his knapsack could contain a bomb, but this unremarkable action, putting a knapsack under the table in a bar, is not one that can now go unremarked, especially by someone who first saw Stalker on Sunday, February the 8th, 1981, shortly after seeing the Battle of Algiers. He orders something from the barman, whose white jacket also serves as a towel, possibly as a dishcloth, 
and maybe as a hanky too. The whole place looks like it could be dirty, but it's too dingy to tell, and the credits in yellow sci-fi Cyrillic do not exactly clarify the situation. It's the kind of bar men meet in prior to a bank job that is destined to go horribly wrong, and the barman is the type to take no notice of anything that's not his business, and the more things that are not his business, the better it is for him, even if it means that business is so slow as to be almost non-existent. As far as he's concerned, long as he's here minding his own business and wearing his grubby barman's jacket, he's doing his job. And if no one comes and no one wants anything and nothing needs doing, the wonky light can wait, as can most things. It's all the same to him. Still smoking, he trudges over with a coffee pot. He's one of those barmen who makes the simplest task feel like the labor of a minimum wage Hercules. He pours some coffee for the stranger, goes out back again, and leaves him to it, to his coffee, to his sipping and waiting. Of that, there can be no doubt. The stranger is definitely waiting for something or someone. A caption, some kind of meteorite or alien visitation has led to the creation of a miracle, the zone. Troops were sent in and never returned. It was surrounded by barbed wire and a police cordon. This caption was added at the behest of the studio, Mosfilm, who wanted to stress the fantastical nature of the zone where the subsequent action will be set. They also wanted to make sure that the bourgeois country where all this happened could not be identified with the USSR. Hence, this mysterious business of the zone all happened, according to the caption, quote, in our small country, which put everyone off the scent because the USSR, as we all know, covered a very large area and Russia was, still is, huge too. Russia. I can still hear Laurence Olivier saying it now in the Barbarossa episode of The World at War, the boundless motherland of Russia. Faced with the German invasion of 1941, Russians fell back on the traditional strategy, the strategy that had done for Napoleon and would do for Hitler too. Trade space for time, said Olivier, a message Tarkovsky took to heart. The sound of water dripping. We peer through an interior set of doors into a room. In film script shorthand, int means interior, and ext, exterior. This is a kind of super int, or int int. Inside already, the camera inches deeper inside. It's as if Tarkovsky has started where Antonioni left off in the famous inside-out shot at the end of The Passenger and taken it a stage further. Inside, in. As slow as that, but without the color. Antonioni's earlier Red Desert would, as the title suggests, be unimaginable without the color. The color, Monica Vitti's green coat, is what makes it wonderful. But for the 34-year-old Tarkovsky, ent interviewed in 1966, the year he completed his second feature, Andrei Rublev, it was, quoting, the worst of his films after the cry. It was the worst of his films because of the color, because Antonioni got so seduced he said, by Monica Vitti's red hair against the mists, because the color, said Tarkovsky, has killed the feeling of truth. 
Well, this takes a bit of chewing and digesting. Take away the color, and what are you left with? You're left with Laventura, I suppose, also with Monica Vitti, and you're so bored you long for color, for something to make time pass or to stop you minding that it's not passing. Since we're speaking about truth and how it feels, I feel honor-bound to admit that Laventura is the nearest I have ever come to pure cinematic agony. <laughs> I saw it one summer in a tiny cinema in the 5th arrondissement of Paris, where the screen was no bigger than a big telly. A black and white film in Italian with French subtitles in Paris in August in my late 20s a case study in loneliness. <laughs> the only way I was able to get through it was by saying to myself, I can't bear this for another second, even though there was not actually such a thing as a second in Laventura. A minute was the minimum increment of temporal <laughs> measurement. Every second lasted a minute, every minute lasted an hour, and an hour a year, and so on. Trade time for a bigger unit of time. When I finally emerged into the Parisian twilight, I was in my early 30s. <laughs> Even to describe the black and white of Stalker is, as black and white is to tint what we're seeing with an inappropriate suggestion of the rainbow. Technically, this concentrated sepia was achieved by filming in color and printing in black and white. The result is a kind of sub-monochrome in which the spectrum has been so compressed that it might turn out to be a source of energy, like oil and almost as dark, but with a gold sheen too. As well as the dripping, there is a certain amount of creaking and other spooky noises that are not easy to explain. We are in the room now, looking at a bed. Okay, I think uh, that gives you a sense. So that's a very, very, very... That's how it starts, really, with that close summary of what's, uh, what's happening on screen. And I'll now read just a little bit um, from, from that great moment. You'll remember, those of you who've seen the film, that incredible sequence when they're heading into the zone. There's that long tracking sequence where we've got the, the heads of the three characters who are going into the zone. And it lasts for, it lasts for ages. And then, um, then we get, I mean, I don't want to, to spoil the incredible suspense of my own book, but... Uh, You'll, you'll, see what, you'll, you'll see what happens. So just bear in mind that the point at which we join the book now, the, join the book and the film now, this sequence, the trolley car sequence, has been going on for quite a long while. It lasts long enough, this sequence, to lull us into a kind of trance. There then occurs one of the miracles of cinema, one of several minute miracles in a film about an allegedly miraculous place. It's not a jump cut or fade, but suddenly and gently, the clanging and echoey clank of the music and trolley are still on the soundtrack. Unambiguously, we're in color and in the zone. You can watch the trolley car sequence again and again, can refuse to succumb to its hypnotic monotony, and you can never predict where it will come, this moment of subtle and absolute transition. Camera and trolley continue clanking forward for a few moments and then come to a halt. The camera pauses and moves back. We are there. We are in the zone. It's every bit as lovely as Stalker had claimed and at the same time quite ordinary. 
The air is full of the sound of birds, of wind in the trees, running water, mist, muted greens, weeds and plants swaying in the breeze, the tangled wires of a tilted telegraph pole, the rusting remains of a car. We are in another world that is no more than this world perceived with unprecedented attentiveness. Landscapes like this had been seen before Tarkovsky, but I don't know how else to put it. Their beingness had not been seen in this way. Tarkovsky reconfigured the world, brought this landscape, this way of seeing the world, into existence. Many forms of landscape depend on a particular artist or writer or artistic movement to render them beautiful, to make us see, make the rest of us see what has always been there. But it's not only the unchanging, eternal, natural world that needs to be mediated in this way. Walker Evans opened our eyes to the sagging shacks, wrecked cars, and fading signs of America in the 30s. To that extent, Evans anticipated Robert Bresson's reminder to himself in Notes on the Cinematographer. Make visible what without you might perhaps never have been seen. A little later, Bresson added a medium-specific twist to this ambition. Quality of a new world, which none of the existing arts allowed to be imagined. Two related questions then. Would we regard this landscape of fields, abandoned cars, tilted telegraph poles, and trees as beautiful without Tarkovsky? And could it have been brought into existence by any medium other than film? If Stalker had not been the first Tarkovsky film I saw, then I might have recognized elements of this landscape from Mirror, the cross tees of the telegraph poles, the greens, made more lush somehow by being subdued. The distinction between the man-made and the natural being eroded before our eyes. If I had seen Mirror, I might have recognized this landscape, these elements, as Tarkovsky land. I might have echoed the first words uttered by Stalker. Here we are, home at last. And yet at some level, I must have recognized, or at least been familiar with, a modest and local variant of this kind of landscape, which perhaps accounts, in part, for why the film has made such a deep impression on me. There's just one train station now in Cheltenham, where I grew up, but in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there were four. One of these, Lecampton, was only a five-minute walk from where we lived. My father used to take me up there when I was a toddler to watch trains steam in and out. The line and the station closed down in 1962 when I was four. I've no recollection of going there with my dad, only of his telling me that we used to go there. But I have strong memories of heading off to this abandoned brambly zone to play with a couple of friends when we were eight or nine. The windows of the disused station building had been smashed and the rain had seeped in. It looked as if it had long ago fallen into decay. Faded, rain buckled, the timetable was still displayed, a memorial to its own passing. An empty packet of players' cigarettes, the ones my mother smoked, with the face of the bearded sailor on the front, 
gone to a watery grave at the bottom of a puddle, frog-spawny, rust-coloured, pond-size, cloudy with gnats. The tracks had rusted, were overgrown with weeds, grass, stinging nettles, dandelions. Sometimes we followed them for a while beyond the ends of the platforms, but never as far as the next station along, also abandoned, a couple of miles away in Charlton Kings. Here we are, said Stalker, home at last. Uh, then I'm just going to read you a little bit, one of these little sort of digressions towards the end, where I start dealing with the, uh, the sort of stuff that, uh, some of the uh, issues that Tarkovsky raises. So, <clears throat> um, at the heart of the zone is a place where it's claimed your innermost wish comes true. Uh, and it's important to stress that it's only your innermost, innermost wish. It's not what you think you want, which might be lots of money or whatever. It's what your innermost wish is. And so, and the, your, this happens in the film, when, actually when you get to this place, of course we all think we want our innermost wish to be revealed. But actually the closer people get to it, the more reluctant they are to enter this room because... You know, can they bear to be confronted with what they really are? So, this is, uh, this is where I start. And there's loads of discussion as the film proceeds about, you know, what, what it means to, to encounter your, um, you know, to, to, to have the chance of realizing your deepest wish. And this is a bit where I kind of extrapolate from this. Well, what about this scenario then? What if you got here and went into the room, believing in it absolutely, and it turned out that you didn't have an innermost wish? that all the things you thought you wished for, you didn't actually want. You leave the room, leave the zone, and nothing happens. Jack shit. Would you conclude from this that you were absolutely content, purring on a daily basis like a cat or a dog whose bowl of milk was constantly replenished? Unlikely, or at least if you had been content without realizing it, now you would most certainly be filled with discontent you would conclude that the room did not work, that you'd been sold a pup, that Stalker had not undergone the changes that he went through as Tarkovsky re reworked, rewrote, and reshot the film. You would phone him, demand a refund, threaten to blacken his name, turn him into the authorities, or at the very least, refuse to recommend him to friends, considering a once-in-a-lifetime trip to the much-vaunted zone. Of course, Stalker would have none of it, in the extremely unlikely event that he returned or even answered your calls, he would insist that it had worked, that it was working perfectly, and so you would be left seething, dissatisfied, cheated, unable to accept that this was your innermost wish, your innermost nature. It's what we call in the trade a parable. So, Jeannie, now it's dialogue time. Great. Thank you all for listening. Okay, um, it seems that it would be appropriate to begin at the beginning. If you don't already have this, you may well within the hour. Um, but my question for you is, this is a book that is a summary of what happens in the film, but this is a film that is also about green, it's about the position of the camera, and yet there are no images inside the book, which again, some of you may know, there is one image on the cover. So I was curious mm. if you could speak about why there are no stills from the film inside and also how you decided that the sole image that would represent the film is the child reading from the very end of it. 
Oh, what a great question. It's always nice to have the opportunity to, to sort of express your pissed offness in public, isn't it? So we have to go back a little while. So, I mean, as you know, I wrote this history of photography. And I had no experience of doing this before. So uh, and it, it was essential to me that I had lots of images. And then when it came to it, I realized that, A, try, that the work of getting hold of getting images is unbelievably boring. And from my miserly point of view, even worse, it's, unbe worse, it's unbelievably expensive. And it's just terrible. And after that... I mean, I really thought I would never do a book again that required images. And this was a book of... Some of the reviews of the book have complained about, A, the lack of images. And so that, I say, don't mention it to me. Get on the phone to Robert Frank, Dune Arbus, and Roy de Caravas people. It's not my fault. And then they complain that... So they complain about the absent images. Then they complain about the way the images are so small. Well, blame the center... Of, blame all these people who wanted to charge this unbelievable amount of money to reproduce them. Anyway, that's my grievance. That's a book where I really, in an ideal world, the images would have been bigger, they'd have been on glossy paper, all this kind of stuff. Because there was lots of kind of really close reading of photographs. Now, with this book, it wasn't, I didn't even want photographs, even if I'd been offered them for free, because really, um, I wanted the book to uh, float free of the, the film, to the extent that, you know, going back to that anecdote I told about at the beginning, whereby, you know, it wasn't going to be a book about tennis, which had considerable commercial appeal. Instead, it was going to be, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, this, this book with very limited commercial appeal. In fact, I... I'll now complete the end of that anecdote, uh, whereby you know I said to my agent when I handed it, handed it in, I think you'll agree that since the publishers commissioned a book on tennis, I think you'll agree that uh, uh, in terms of my disregard for the market or what a publisher might re reasonably expect, this is my greatest achievement. <laughs> um, I wanted it to float free of the film, partly because it's not always entirely um, uh, reliable, but also I felt the one thing that this deeply uncommercial book had going for it was that you didn't have to have seen the film in order to enjoy the book. Mm -hmm. So anything that allowed it to have this kind of autonomous, independent life was a good thing, whereas pictures would have anchored it and grounded it much more uh, and condemned it to being a sort of secondary, a secondary text. Whereas now, I think really, I mean really, the film is no more than a trailer for my own book. <laughs> uh. Well, let, let's talk about that some more. You use the word summary all the time, right? This is a summary of a book. Now the book is also autonomous of the film. Is it an act of criticism, though? Um, some of your harshest words in some of your earliest work is dedicated um, towards skewering academic criticism that takes apart the object of its study. Is this a work of film criticism? Uh, yes, among other things. Uh, just and just to be, this is the great thing, isn't it? You see, I am the world's leading expert on my own work, and so I think it wasn't just that I was. I wasn't talking so much about literary criticism, which it seems to me that's silly. It was a particular, it was a particular era and kind of theory to which I am inc incredible. I, I became incredibly hostile. But yeah, criticism is always going to be there, isn't it? You know, you come out of a film or you read a book and you say to your friend. You, you know, at the most basic level, you say, that was great or that was crap. And then typically you then, you know, perhaps justify it. You articulate why, why that is so. Yeah, I really think it's a work of criticism. 
especially if we bear in mind, you know, that opening line of George Steiner's book, uh, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, that crucial first line of his when he says, you know, I wish I could do, I'll try to do the George Steiner voice. You know, all criticism should arise from a debt of love. Um, and, you know, this is very much a, a kind of a, a love letter, really. Um, and in the, in the way of the best love letters, it's, it's that kind of thing of saying, in a way, you know what, it's still mysterious to me what is so, so fantastic and wondrous about you, i.e. About, uh, about the film. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of other things as well, but I really think it's a, a book of criticism also in, in terms of I mean, this, the process. Of, people often ask me about what I think criticism is, and for me it's an incredibly simple thing. You, you, kind of, you, you try to describe as accurately as possible the thing that you're talking about, mm -hmm. And the best art critics, for example, are those who bring a painting alive verbally on the page. You then articulate your feelings about it. And ideally then, by doing that very, very precisely, that contains a kind of judgment, I think. Mm -hmm. It's not like the judgment is tacked on at the end where you, know, where you give it either two thumbs up or, uh, or what's the other symbol, a miserable face. You know, I guess at the back of my, I mean, there's so many, it's, so, you know, this book, which is about a film I saw 30 years ago, I'm going to put this clock down, it's really bugging me. Um, uh, uh, it also, I mean, it draws on all sorts of other stuff that I, that's been around for a long time. So, you know, I'm, it's so present in my mind, those lines, there's uh, John Berger, who's been so important to me, you know, he quotes Walter Benjamin, who quotes Goethe. This is logged in my mind for so for, for so long, you know, when he says, when Goethe says, there is a delicate form of the empirical which identifies itself so closely with the object under discussion that it thereby becomes theory. Hence the need for the very detailed summary, because there it is, that very detailed sort of identification of the, you know, yeah, it's a very, you know, it's a very empirical study in a way, highly subjective. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, of course, the film is also based on a book. Um, so in some ways, it's Janice-faced. You have a book about uh -huh. a film. It's a film that's about a book. And then the image that you choose for the cover, the, there is an image, of course, to oh, not image. allow it to yeah, float entirely, yeah. is, is Monkey reading, almost as though she's reading the source that the film itself is, is drawing from. It, it's curious to me, do you see the book also staging a confrontation, then, between writing and cinema? You are all in favor of medium specificity and really praise the beauties of seeing the film on 35 millimeter, that it's important to see the film in its filminess. Um, but clearly writing is doing something here. Is it, are they in tension? Are they supporting each other? Yeah, you know, I've completely forgot that second part of your first question about why we have that, uh, that lovely image on. And it's, yeah, I like the way that she's reading the, you know, reading the book. Uh, and I guess I should also say that that sequence, I mean, for me, that is, I mean, it is so unbelievably beautiful, that the sequence that begins with, with that image. And I did a reading at Stanford, and they did a really nice thing um, for the poster advertising the event. You know, they're, they're so, you know, in this way that young people can do these things, they slightly digitally manipulated it so she was actually reading my book. <laughs> the word, auto, word autotelic is some sort of lurking somewhere in the, uh, yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that it seemed to me it, it, the book is a reading of the film. And I guess, you know, it's one of the things I've been kind of keen on in a way. On the one hand, okay, I want the book to, to float free of the, the film. 
On the other hand, I would say that a long-running thing in the, the books I've done, I don't know if some of you have, have been to London, uh, travel on the underground, when you pull into stops, this message comes over, mind the gap, referring to the gap between the train and the platform. They don't want you to fall in it. And when I was a student, I was so conscious of the gap between the texts we were reading, Dickens, George Eliot, or whatever, which was great fun, loved it, and then the criticism, which was so boring, the huge gap. And you know, it seemed to me that was a gap into that was an abyss into which many undergraduates fall, never to reemerge because it's yeah, they just yeah, there there it is, it's the gap. Um, and so, in a weird way, I feel that my writing after that has been sort of trying to shrink the gap, you know. So that But Beautiful is very like, uh, it's, you know, it's imbued with some of the things about, uh, about jazz. And in some ways, this film, this book unfolds sort of filmically in a way, in a way that the photography book un unfolds, um, uh, you know, sort of photographically. So I like that ekphrastic kind of uh, quality, mm -hmm. quality to, to things as well. Each medium has certain things going for it. You know, I've never had any desire to write film scripts, but you know, the, the you know one of the things about writing a film script is you know you want to show a sunset, you know you want there to be a sunset. You just write sunset. Mm -hmm. Then it's up to the filmmaker to you know to bring the sunset to life. But since as a writer, one of the things I like doing is I like describing sunsets. You know, I've got no desire to to write a, a, a film script. So there was yeah, there's you know that there, there are certain incompatibilities between media. So, you know, with the jazz book, the basic incompatibility is that thing with, in jazz, because it's improvisational, you know, there's that uh, onus put on freshness, spontaneity, or the illusion of spontaneity, and the idea is that if you rehearse it too much, it'll go dead. Typically with writing, it gets better and better the more you work on it, you know, and I guess Kerouac is the kind of test case of this, you know, and I like the way that you know, it's been revealed that he kept, you know, in spite of the myth, you know, it turns out he kept revising on the road to make it more spontaneous. <laughs> you know, um, anyway, so there's, you know, there's points at which the, the book and the, uh, I mean, this is a, a film that lends itself very well, very easily to being written about uh, because it's a very wordy film for, for one thing. And um, also because... It's actually, although it's slow, I'm struck by, by, by now, whenever I watch it, by how sort of exciting it is. It's, it's a journey, and once you've got a journey, of course, then you've got narrative, and you know, wh where are they going to go next? So since, as a writer, I'm unable to think of plots, well, then I just hitched my, hitched my cart to Tarkovsky's pony and went along for the ride. <laughs> he, provi he provided the plot stuff for me. Well, let's talk about that in the form of the book, um, and this is so hard to get from a reading, but you can see it, of course, very clearly on the page. There's a main body of the text, and then there are a series of starred notes. Um, and the starred notes might appear maybe one per page. There might be two per page. We might have several pages without them. And then there might be a very long, pages-long digression. Mm -hmm. Do you see a hierarchical relationship between the two? Would you like people to read the book as two separate texts? Is it like a jazz standard and improvisation? What's the relation between the upper and the lower body of the page? Yeah, um, well, um, do you know, one of, one of my undergraduate, one of the books that I most loved as an undergraduate was that Penguin edition we had of, the, uh, of Wordsworth, the prelude, the parallel text, where you get, what is it, I can't remember the years now, the whichever version and the other version, and they'd run on two, two parallel pages, one on the verso, one on the recto, and it was great, I loved that. And I knew that there was going to be this 
two, several things going on in the book. One, this summary of the book, which is unfolding, and then this other stuff about both the making of the film and my own sort of personal, you know, the way that my life had combined with. So at one stage, I thought about maybe trying to do it as a parallel text, but that wouldn't have worked at all because there, were so, there would be so many sections where it was all summary, so you'd get, you know, verso page blank, recto page crammed full, or the other way around. So that wouldn't have worked. So the way I did it with footnotes, that was the least irritating way of doing it, although I accept totally that it is still somewhat irritating. Uh, there, I wanted to, one of the reasons that the footnotes are in the same font, the same size as the main body of the text, is precisely because there's nothing subordinate about it, that they're, 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 you know, they're, of, they're, of, they're of equal importance. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating with some of the long footnotes that you have to, you, you sort of lose track of where you are. But to go back again to that mind the gap point, you know, bear in mind that the book, you know, uh, sorry, the film, there are more and more of these uh, long digressions about things in the, I, I, among the characters, whereby the ongoing journey to the room gets, you know, they, they sort of don't get anywhere, or they go off on some sort of detour, and then you realize they're back, back where they started. And also, crucially, if we remember that there's one great bit in the film when the when writer says in his you know grumpy way says you know what are we doing all this stuff throwing those nuts and stuff we could walk there it's only a hundred yards mm -hmm. and uh, stalker says yeah but you can't go there directly we've got to go all around the houses so weirdly all of these digressions for which i have a fondness anyway they were apt by doing that i stuck i, st I, I stuck very very carefully mm -hmm. to the to the to the to the root of the film mm -hmm. it was you know it was a real yeah, it remained. At, it didn't stray at all, mm -hmm. um, or rather, in order to be faithful to mm -hmm. the book, to the film, I had to, I had to stray like like that. Can you read the book in real time alongside? You know, mm. is it like Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz? Can you sync the two up perfectly? Do you know? For a brief while, <clears throat> I thought I loved that idea, and I worked out. Uh, I'm a very slow reader, and I worked out that yeah, you could just about read the book in real time. And then the book got longer, and I realized, oh my God, then you'd have to, you could still do it, but you'd have to start reading quicker and quicker and quicker. And that was absolutely incompatible with this book that it proceeds at this rather, at sort of walking pace. Yeah. And the gain, and since you can't direct how, how quickly people uh, read, it seemed that the, the gain in that was going uh, to be small. So it's, you can read it in real time if you're a re really quick reader, but, you know, then we come back to that old Woody Allen joke about how he speed read War and Peace once, you know. It's about Russia, he says. <laughs> Let's stay with time for a minute. Um, mm. You talk quite a bit about our expectations of time needing to get checked at the cinema door. You speak of Tarkovsky time, and then, of course, you speak of moron time as, mm. as the opposite of that. So I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Um, I was hoping you weren't going to read that passage. Um, but also, I'm curious if you see your own work as marked by a kind of Tarkovsky time. It's certainly anything but boring, it would seem to me. Mm. So I'm curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm certainly falling prey to more on time myself. You know, everything has sped up so much. And when I was, when I saw this film, I just, you know, I'd graduated. So I'm in my early 20s. And I think my whole educational experience had been, at that age, was to persuade me that great things, great literature, it tended to have quite a heavy, to be carrying quite a heavy freight of boredom about it. So that, you know, 
that was, you know, you'd sort of feel, ah, you know, I'm reading The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. It's cosmically boring, therefore it's cosmically great, you know. Anyway, now things have sped up a great deal now, uh, and I wonder if uh, the young audience, somebody of the, the age now that I was seeing uh, Stalker then, I wonder how it would seem to them, because I was really steeped in slow-moving cinema by, by that time, and I think there would be two ways. It would either seem just so unbelievably slow as to be you know, just unthinkable, or actually I think weirdly its, its specialness, its magic would be even more, uh, even more apparent. The crucial thing, though, I think, well, a, I mean, I wasn't being entirely honest when I, in that bit I read where I said that um, the Antonioni film was, you know, that I found that boring. Because for me, the most boring films are these kind of fast-moving action blockbusters. You know, they are, they really bore the crap out of me. You know, I can't, they are so boring. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things with Tarkovsky, when I first went to see it, I was, there was a slight, because it was billed as a science fiction film, <coughs> I, was, I brought to it a slight impatience. So I think the thing is, it's not like there's some absolute pace at which something is either exciting or, or boring. It's more that the, the boredom that you feel is a kind of friction between your expectations and how it unfolds, mm -hmm. which is why it was such genius on Tarkovsky's part when the guy from Mosfilm, or whatever it was, said to him after the preview, oh, Andre, it's a great film, but could you just get, you know, get it moving a bit more at the beginning? And Tarkovsky exploded, no, you know, actually, I'm going to make it even slower at the beginning so morons can go to see the Bourne Ultimatum or whatever without disturbing, you know, before it gets going. And that was really uh, um, important because uh, since finishing the book, I learned from Tom Luddy, who was... Had, was, uh, was involved in some way with Coppola's making of uh, the conversation, I think. Apparently, they also thought that maybe the conversation should start moving more quickly at the beginning. And actually, all that did was get people into a kind of slightly more uh, expectant group. So that actually, then they became impatient later on. So it was, really, it was a really good idea to, to slow things down at the beginning, to get people into that kind of trance-like state. And now when, I'm, when I watch Stalker, is I find that once, you, once, they got, once he's left the, you know, the wife and kid at home, it really, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, I'd say that it's like, it's like the sort of key, uh, it's like the sort of keystone cops at times, a car chase. It really does move along at, at quite a clip. Yeah. So it's a question always, I feel, of um, just giving yourself to the experience, just trancing out, out to it. And then it, then it stops being boring at all. And, you know, Tarkovsky had many comments like this, rather like John Cage, you know, saying, you know, you increase the length of a shot. And it's, it's you know, long shots, first of all, they're boring. Make it still longer. And people think, oh, this is interesting. You know, make it last still longer, and you get into this weird trance-like state where time ceases to exist. Mm -hmm. A slightly different take on time, um, and that's, <clears throat> you say at one point that the reluctance or the hesitation to go into the room and the characters end up, as you say, on the threshold, is a specifically middle-aged problem. And there are asides, I started to trace them, there are asides about your wife's appearance over a long duration. There are asides about your father's oh. regret um, at thrift early in his life in my favorite passage. There are references to being middle-aged. Um, and you talk also about the loss of wonder, that the best films in one's life come into one's life before one is 30. So my question for you is, could you have written this book about a film that you loved 
20 years ago, when you had only loved it for 10 years, is there something <laughs> about aging and time that, that starts to, to order it? Um, oh, what a great question. Yeah, yeah, I guess because, I mean, my sense, my sense of the film's greatness has only deepened over time. So I quote in the book, and one of the, you know, I came across this, this passage uh, when I was thinking of, it was one of the things that made me write the, the book, is this line in Kurtzia's Diary of a Bad Year, where he says, you know, there are passages in the Brothers Karamazov, he says, which I, he's read innumerable times before, but rather than becoming inured to their power, he says he still finds, finds himself sobbing helplessly. And I found that for me, I just found Stalker, I find it more and more moving. I found it more and more moving as I got older. And weirdly, and this is quite, and it's, it's so inexhaustible, even writing this book has not, has done nothing. It's, it's actually just made me more vulnerable to it, mm. its greatness. So now, I mean, it's, you know, I promise you, if we were watching it now, there'd be several sequences of it where I just, you know, I just find I'm crying because I find it so, so profound, so moving. And I think my sense of why it's so profound has, you know, developed as, as, as I've got older. And also I'm aware now in that way of things of just, you know, this kind of, yeah, uh, I, I, I look back now, and because I'm, I'm teaching at Iowa, and a lot of the kids there, in the, they're sort of 25 or, or something, and I, I can see now that, that some of them, you know, some of them are unbearably intense. You know, there's a guy that I recommended that he read uh, Adorno's Minima Moralia. He's a great guy. He's from sort of San Diego, so he's inherently relaxed. <laughs> but this reading these, you know, great dialectical, it's just screwed him up into this tighter and tighter dialectical knot. And I sort of just, and he listens to a load of music, and I sort of think, yeah, you know, I, I just, that sort of age, it's really, really special. There's something particularly about films, I'm really confident of this point, that there's something in about that age when you're seeing films and, you know, those, your idea of what is the greatest film is so going to be uh, is so going to form you, especially if it happens to be a film which, is, which has come out at that moment. And it's not just me. I mean, I'm sure many people here love David Thompson's biographical dictionary of, of film, you know, really one of the, the great works of literature of our time, let alone one of the great film books. But the key entry of that film, who, who, who knows David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film? Yeah. What is the key entry? What is the Rosetta Stone entry? <laughs> oh, oh uh, well, it's the one on Kieran Hickey. What the fuck is Kieran Hickey, you ask? You know, because it's all, you know, it's about all... Kieran Hickey is just this friend of his. Um, and so it's all done alphabetically. Cause it's a dictionary, so there's entries on Antonioni, Goddard, but this great entry on Kieran Hickey, um, where start, he, he talks about how they met in the, in the queue to see uh, some Fellini film or something in the 50s at the NFT in London, then he talks about all the films they saw, and then um, uh, and then he talks about how Kieran Hickey um, uh, had such an influence on him in the, the writing of this book. And then, well, I, I can't actually even talk about this without uh, without getting so moved by it. But the the entry on Kieran Hickey—it's so unbelievably moving. What uh, David Thompson says about him at the end, and it's it's about that. It's about looking back at that. Uh, you know, at that phase. And, I, you know, there's different versions of this. You know, there's, you know, it's what Wordsworth is banging on about all the time in the, in, in the prelude, isn't it? You know, so, yeah. 
Um, my last question before we turn it over to the group here Can is... Can I just interrupt for a yeah, second? Of course. That wasn't one of my more stupid remarks. I am aware that cinema hadn't been invented when Wordsworth was writing the, the prelude. <laughs> well, time has no place sorry, here. That's fine. Um, my last question for you is this is a film that it, almost in a you know, medieval morality play has um, characters who are named by what they do. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the writer and there is the professor and there's the stalker, meaning the guide, the one who sort of leads you through. Um, yeah. But there's also the wife. There's also monkey, <laughs> the child. And I wanted to ask um, which of these you imagine yourself as most in the book, the writer who's looking for inspiration, the professor who's analytically taking something apart but is also um, terrified by that curiosity, the stalker who's guiding, the wife who ends by avowing that she loves something that's unfathomable, or the child who is reading? Is that just about the smartest question you've ever heard? I mean, it, it is on, on my part. Um, so, yeah, it's great. Well, on the one hand, I mean, I sort of identify with the washed-up cynical, dissolute writer who just wants to spend all his time drinking. Yeah, I really identify with him. Um, the professor, I mean, he, he, they call him professor. I don't know, in the Russian, they might actually call him scientist, because that's what he is. He's, it's not like he's a professor of you know, literature or something. Uh, I'm, but I like the way he's called professor, because I feel in some way I'm between the two. I'm not a straight-down-the-line writer in the sense that, uh, you know, a novelist or whatever. So I'm between the two, they're doing this kind of creative criticism, whatever. Uh, what happens for me in the course of the f many viewings of the film, I identify now so much with, with Stalker. And what, is, what, what becomes so, so moving the more you see the film is his absolute faith in, the, in, the, in this place, the zone. You know, the way he believes in it so completely and his despair that you know, these people don't, don't believe, don't care about this thing that he loves so much. And, you know, I'm sure you'll all be familiar with this. There's, you know, okay, I've written this book about Stalker. Everyone in this room could probably do something about some work of art that means so much to them. And I think maybe you've, you'll have been familiar with this rather under-commented on part of the dating process, whereby you take your you know, the person you've just fallen for, to see this film that means so much to you or this piece of music. And basically, if they don't love it, then they're, gonna, they're not going to make it to the next. Because, you know, you just couldn't love somebody who was so idiotic and emotionally stunted as not to, you know. So it's, it, there's that quality too. So I, I like that. And that also, then, you know, the way that the wife is, uh, you know, she... She puts up with all of this stuff, uh, and then, but then there's no doubt at all, in a way, the central character in the, you know, the most important character in the film ends up being, you know, the, the little girl. Um, and it's a one of, I've never written a book where I've learned so much about the subject of the book after the book was finished. Mm -hmm. So I've only just realized that all of, we, you know, all of the, the bits with the girl after the first sleeping sequence, she, you know, she's in color. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, she obviously, and color we associate with the zone, but she is clearly, you know, she's a zone child. You know, she's got those, those sort of magical abilities. So um, I identify with them all. Maybe most of all I, I identify with the surly barman called, what's his name, Igor or something. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, but, yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's the, the, whole, the whole package. And, of course, some, you know, in some weird way, of course, to make a not very interesting point, I am like the stalker in that I'm guiding readers through this, you know, through the through this film, and you know, then it comes back to this thing, you know, 
what, what is the zone? Well, the zone is very obviously, whatever else it might be, it's, it's about the wonder of cinematic space. So that's what I'm you know, trying, to, trying to guide people through in a stalker-like way. You also do a beautiful job in the book talking about the way the camera suggests a disembodied spectral other mm, presence. Yeah. And for what it's worth, that's what I always felt that you were most like. Um, governing, standing near, but outside the film as well. Please join me in thanking Jeff Dyer, and then we'll yeah. take your questions. Thank you.